you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Romans chapter 14. It's been about three weeks since we've been in Paul's letter to the Romans, and so let me take this opportunity to kind of provide a summary of where we've been and try to set the stage for the passage that we're looking at this morning. The first 11 chapters of this book is Paul's presentation of the gospel. The first two and a half chapters, Paul presents us with man's greatest need. And his greatest need is that he is sinful and he's separated from God because of his rebellion against God, that he lacks the righteousness that is required in order for him to have a relationship with God and worship God because of his sin. And so he has a great need to be rescued from this, to be saved from this. And then in the next two and a half chapters, from the midway point of chapter 3, All the way through the end of chapter 5, Paul gives us God's answer to man's greatest need. And God's answer to man's greatest need is that he justifies sinners by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. His son who lived the perfect life for us and then died in our place on the cross rising three days later as we celebrated last Sunday, and that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from their greatest need are given his righteousness and are forgiven of their sins. So first, there was man's greatest need, his sin, and what that resulted in. And then secondly, in in the next two and a half chapters, God's solution. Thirdly, In chapters 6, 7, 8, Paul talks about the believer's sanctification. That after someone comes to faith in Christ, then they get to follow Jesus with their life. They get to follow Jesus Christ in faithfulness. And this passage, chapters 6, 7, and 8, talks about how we do that. How we walk with the Spirit. How we have been freed from being a slave to sin, and now we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ, and we get to live for him. And he also talked there about how God ensures that every genuine follower of Jesus Christ will, in fact, persevere to the very end by God's grace and for God's glory. The fourth section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, really was Paul's justification of God, that God is just in his judgment of sinners, and that he's also just in his election of some to salvation. He talked about God's sovereignty, how God is completely sovereign in salvation, that he has elected some by his own sovereign grace and according to the pleasure of his own will, those who come to faith in Christ. And in explaining that, he also dealt with in that section the the problem of Israel and how God dealt with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and how he deals with the nation of Israel during the church age. So at the end of chapter 11, Paul, we we, we have Paul's doxology where he erupts in praise and, and worship of God after explaining and presenting these glorious truths of the gospel. He says at the end of chapter 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And thus Paul concludes the first of two main parts of this letter. 
Then he starts the second main part of the letter with chapter 12. And this is where it gets much more practical. And it begins to answer the question, so what? The first 11 chapters are the what of the gospel. And then chapters 12 through 16 are the so what of the gospel. How now should we live in light of the truths of the gospel that he's presented in the first 11 chapters? The first two verses of chapter 12 really give us the roadmap for everything that's going to follow in this section. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God being the glories of the gospel presented in the first 11 chapters, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies now as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so he tells us, he's going he's to tell us multiple ways in which we are now, we who have been transformed by the gospel, we who have been bought by Christ, by faith, how we are to be transformed and changed instead of being conformed to the pattern of the world around us. And so this is the section that we find ourselves in this morning, this practical section, chapters 12 through 16. In chapter 12, we had that rapid-fire list of exhortations, one after the other, some 30-plus exhortations of, of how we ought to live now in light of the gospel. In chapter 13, he started to talk about one of the ways in which we are to be changed is how we love one another. And he, he goes on to say that our love for one another in the body of Christ is actually a fulfillment of the law. And then this theme of love continued into chapter 14, which is what we're in this morning. And in chapter 14, he shifts the talk about one of the ways in which we demonstrate our love for one another, one another is how we handle disagreements in the body of Christ over matters that are not explicitly handled in Scripture. Our opinions concerning behaviors or activities that the Bible doesn't explicitly require or prohibit. Things like eating meat offered to idols and observing certain holy days. So that's where we've been in chapter 14. And up to this point in chapter 14, we've unpacked four principles that Paul has given us governing situations like this in the body of Christ. It's really important because he spends all of chapter 14, even the first few verses of chapter 15, talking about this. So those, those four principles were, first of all, God is judge. And so we ought not to take his place. So there was a tendency on the part of the brothers and sisters in the church who were weaker in the faith to pass judgment on those who were stronger in the faith because they were exercising their freedom and their Christian liberty in doing some of these behaviors and some of these activities that weren't explicitly prohibited in scripture, but the, those who were weaker in the faith were beginning to pass judgment on them because they were exercising that liberty. And he says, listen, God alone is our judge, so don't take his place. The second principle was that the heart motive is more important than the action. Now, this is, a, this is only for those issues that are uh, of, of a disputable nature that he was dealing with in this, in this passage. Those behaviors, those activities that the Bible doesn't explicitly require or prohibit. He says that in those, our heart motive, why we're doing them or why we're not doing them, is more important than the action itself. 
And he goes on to tell us that our, our primary motive in any of this, no matter what it is that we do or what it is that we abstain from doing, is to honor and glorify God in that action or inaction. The last two exhortations came from the last time we were in this passage. Verse 13 Uh, taught us not to cause our brother to stumble. That in the exercising of our Christian freedom and liberty to engage in activity or that behavior that isn't explicitly prohibited by Scripture, that we need to be very careful that we don't, in our exercise of that freedom, cause our brother to stumble. Because that would damage their faith, and that would be very hurtful to them. And then that exhortation was followed up by the last one that we covered in verses 14 and 15, which is that we ought to love our brother more than our own liberty. That in exercising our Christian freedom and liberty in these sorts of things, that our first consideration ought to be, is this loving to our our brother, to my brother, or is it potentially grieving them? Not, Not just offending them and making them feel bad about us, but damaging their faith. Is it hurting their faith? And to engage in activity without that consideration would be unloving of us. So this morning, we're going to pick up right where we left off, beginning in verse 16. And in verses 16 through 18, Paul puts an exclamation point on those last two exhortations there. But then that is going to lead Paul to lay out for us what I will call some very important kingdom priorities. So let's read. Our our passage is verses 16 through 18. But I want us, by way of context, to begin with verse 13, and then we'll read down through verse 18. Church, this is the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then the passage for this morning. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let's pray. Father, it is such a privilege to gather with your people and worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we want to continue in that spirit of worship now as we turn to your word. We're so grateful to be able to trust that what we hold in our hands is the very breath of God, that it is profitable for us in so many ways. And God, we ask that you would profit us this morning with your word, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and application to our lives so that we might be just a bit more transformed into the likeness of Jesus, not so that people will look at us and say, what good Christians, but so that people will look at us as we reflect your glory and give you honor and praise with our lives. We ask that you would do that in us, in our homes, in our families. We ask that you do that in this church. We ask that in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to handle this section in, in two parts. The first part will be verse 16 by itself. 
uh, that's going to provide a capstone, an, an exclamation point, if you will, on those last two exhortations that Paul gave us that were mainly for the brother or sister in Christ who was stronger in the faith. It was a, it was a warning to them. So we're going to put a capstone on that as Paul calls for a display of love rather than an insistence on us continuing to exercise our freedom and liberty no matter what the cost. And then secondly, we're going to look at verses 17 through 18, which is really a redirect from the Apostle Paul. Paul hits the pause button in 17 and 18, and he, and he, and he redirects them to get his, his readers focused on what is truly important, calling for a, a change in perspective from focusing on what is relatively unimportant to focusing on what is essential. That's what he does in 17 and 18. So first, verse 16, he says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So what is Paul saying here? Apparently, there were some persons or group of persons within the church there who were speaking evil about something that his readers were considering to be good. The phrase there, spoken of as evil, is a, is a single word in the Greek, and it's the word from which we get our English word, blaspheme. That's what that word actually means. So somebody was blaspheming, calling evil that which they regarded as good. So the question is, what was good? What, what was the good that Paul speaks of here that some people in that church were calling evil? Now, when I read this, it seemed to me, at least on the surface, um, that what Paul was referring to here as good were the, the food and the drink that were in question. The food and the drink that the Brothers and sisters in Christ who were weaker in the faith were calling wrong and sinful and off limits for Christians. That Paul here is saying, listen, actually, that food is in fact good. Why? Because it's part of God's creation. As he says in the first part of verse 14, nothing is unclean in itself. So it's, it's good. But if you dive underneath that understanding of verse 16, it really seems to go against the main thrust of this whole section. The main thrust of this section is that the, the, the brother or sister in Christ who's stronger in the faith really needs to be very considerate and careful about how they exercise their Christian liberty, how they exercise their freedom to either eat the food or, or drink the drink or whatever because of how it might affect their brother, the weaker brother. It might cause them to stumble. It, it might cause them to grieve, and it might, might damage their faith. And so the whole thrust here is to be very considerate about how you exercise that freedom. But if we understand verse 16 to mean that the stronger brother doesn't need to worry about how it affects his weaker brother, and in fact, shouldn't really let them speak evil about those things, that seems to contradict what he has just said in this passage. So most commentators believe that the good to which Paul refers there in verse 16 is the Christian's liberty itself, the Christian's freedom to either engage in that or not engage in that, to consume that food or drink. Our Christian freedom, our Christian liberty is a very good thing. And it's a good thing for two reasons. First of all, because it is supremely valuable. Our Christian liberty is supremely valuable because of what it took to purchase it. 
This liberty was purchased at Calvary. See, we no longer need to manufacture a righteousness of our own in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. We've been made acceptable. We've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ because of the righteousness that Jesus gives us and imputes to us by faith in him. So the freedom that we have in Christ to to eat the meat or to drink the alcohol or to go to the R-rated movie or whatever it is, is supremely valuable. That's one reason it's good. The second reason why our Christian freedom, our Christian liberty is good is because we can use it, we can exercise it to bring glory to God. It can be a means of worshiping God. Listen to what Paul said back in verse 6 of chapter 14. He says, the one who observes the day, because remember, one of the, one of the issues that they were quarreling about is that some people consider certain days as holy and other people consider all days alike. So he goes on to explain that in verse 6. He says, the one who observes the day considers it holy, more holy than the others. It's a religious holiday. You ought to, to observe it. He says, the one who observes that day observes it in honor of the Lord. That's his motive. That's his reason. The one who eats, the one who eats the meat eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains from eating that, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or whether you eat, whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so every display of Christian liberty, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, is in a sense a celebration of Christ's righteousness made ours by faith and is furthermore an opportunity for us to worship him and glorify him. And so this Christian freedom of ours is a very, very good thing. And so Paul is warning them in verse 16, don't let this very good thing, your blood-bought Christian liberty and Christian freedom to eat that meat, that's offered to idols, to observe that day or not observe that day, to drink that alcohol or not drink that alcohol, the liberty that we have as believers in these disputable matters is a good thing. And we ought not to let that be blasphemed or spoken of as evil. So Paul's not saying here that that we need to be concerned about muzzling those who are weaker in the faith and force them to consider these activities as good and acceptable, that would be, again, going against the thrust of his argument here. Instead, Paul is saying if we're not careful, if we're not considerate in how we exercise our liberty and freedom, then we run the risk of causing our brother or sister to stumble, damaging their faith, causing them to grieve. And as Paul said in verse 15, if this is what we're doing, then we're no longer walking in love. And then if that's a result of our exercising our freedom, then that very good thing, our Christian liberty, bought by Christ, will be blasphemed. It will be spoken of as evil because it was the cause of pain and grief and damaging someone's faith and quarreling in the body of Christ. Commentator Douglas Moo puts it this way. Paul here is warning the strong Christians that their insistence on exercising their freedom in ceremonial matters in the name of Christ can lead those who are spiritually harmed by their behavior to revile the legitimate freedom that Christ has won for them. 
I think we see a biblical example of this in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. And lo and behold, what happened on this journey? Some of the same things that happened on the day of Pentecost to Jews in Jerusalem were happening to the Gentiles out in the Roman Empire. Now it wasn't just Jews coming to faith in Jesus. Now it was Gentiles. But the problem was there were some Jews in that Jerusalem church who were telling these new Gentile believers that it wasn't enough for them just to have faith in Christ. Now they also had to become, in a sense, become a Jew. They had to be circumcised. They had to follow the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas disagree with this. They, that's not the gospel that they know. So they take a trip down to Jerusalem. They meet with the official group because these, these folks who were saying this, in fact, look, look at verse 1 of Acts 15. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these men who were coming down from Judea and saying this to them were not the official leaders of the Jerusalem church, but they were Jewish believers who were very concerned that this new Christian religion maintain a very Jewish feel, a very Jewish culture and practices. And so Paul and Barnabas go to the Jerusalem church. They meet with the official leaders of the Jerusalem church. And then they return with a letter from that Jerusalem council, what's known as the Jerusalem council. And that letter takes them off the hook. It lifts from them the burden of becoming a Jew. It lifts from them the burden of circumcision and having to follow the law of Moses. But it's interesting to note that that letter does include some additional requirements. Look look at verses 28 and 29 of Acts 15. This is part of the letter that they bring back to the church at Antioch from the Jerusalem council. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, this is very interesting because this is the letter. If you read it in context, this is the letter that that told the Gentile believers that they didn't have to become Jews. They didn't have to become circumcised. They didn't have to follow the law. All they needed was faith in Christ alone. Exactly what Paul has presented to us in the letter to the Romans. And yet... This letter does include four additional requirements. The first is an inherently obvious sin, or one of them is an inherently obvious sin, and the, and, and the other three are not. The one that's inherently obviously sinful is the, is the exhortation or the requirement to abstain from sexual immorality. That's, that's one of the ones that he, that he gives there. Apparently, that was a big problem in first century Roman Empire, Um, especially among the pagans. And it was an inherently obvious sin spoken elsewhere in Scripture. And so their letter explicitly reminds them, hey, don't sin in that way. We know that's a temptation for you. We know that's been part of your practice. So you need to give that up. Don't sin in that way. But these other three prohibitions that we see in verses 28 and 29 are not inherently obviously sins. They were instead what I believe to be examples of these disputable matters that Paul has been dealing with 
in Romans chapter 14. He tells them to abstain from meat offered to idols. That's exactly what he's been dealing with in Romans 14, right? And he writes this letter. They write this letter to those new Gentile believers. You need to abstain from meat offered to idols, but also abstain from blood. This is the the consuming of animal blood, eating or drinking animal blood. And then the fourth requirement that he, he gives in that letter is to abstain from animals that had been strangled, which really was also a prohibition against consuming blood because the animal that had been killed by strangulation uh, is, was understood to have not been completely drained of their blood. And so that would also be consuming blood. So that second prohibition there to abstain from meat offered to idols, that was a particular problem to the Gentile believers in the early church, especially those who were previously idol worshipers. That was a big problem for them, a big deal to them. These other two requirements to abstain from blood and to abstain from animals that had been strangled were particularly problems for the new Jewish believers that had come to faith in Christ, who had been brought up in the Jewish law, in the Mosaic law. So the question is, does this contradict what Paul tells us in Romans 14? Is the Jerusalem council here in this letter in Acts 15 outline that which Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14 is a Christian freedom? Well, the answer is no. First of all, it's not about the law here. This word requirement in verse 28 is better translated as an essential or necessary thing. So he's not saying you've got to do this in order to be saved. He very clearly dealt with that in the context of that letter. If you go back and read that chapter, it's very clear that the writers of that letter were telling the Gentile believers that they were not bound by Jewish law. But for the Gentile believers who were now hanging around a bunch of Jewish believers, it would be unloving of them to continue to exercise their freedom to consume blood and to eat the meat of strangled animals, something that would have been terribly offensive to the Jew and grievous for the Jewish believer and damaging to their faith. And conversely, for these Jewish believers now who are hanging around a bunch of Gentile believers, it would be very unloving for them to continue to exercise their freedom to eat meat that was offered to idols. Because that would have been terribly offensive and grievous to the Gentile believers who may have just come out of an idol-worshiping life. So in fact, I think what we have in Acts chapter 15 is in fact a great example of the church setting aside and limiting their Christian freedom and their Christian liberty to engage in whatever activity, to to eat this kind of meat in this particular instance, out of a concern for, a love for, and out of a deference for their Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. So verse 16 is telling us, first of all, our Christian freedom is a very good thing. It's a blood-bought freedom to drink alcohol to the glory of God, to eat bacon to the glory of God, whatever, whatever to the glory of God. But if the exercise of my Christian freedom causes a brother to stumble or causes him to grieve and damages their faith, it would be terribly unloving of me 
to continue to insist on me exercising my good freedom when it could have that kind of effect on my brother or sister. And, and the point of verse 16 here is if I do continue to exercise and insist on my right to engage in that liberty and that freedom, then what is very good will be blasphemed, will be spoken of as evil. The very liberty that I have as a redeemed child of God will be spoken of as evil. And Paul says in verse 16, don't let that happen. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, before the church and before the world, it is much more important to demonstrate our love than our freedom. Man, that'd be a good thing to live by, wouldn't it? Before the church, before one another in the body of Christ, and before a watching world, it's much more important for us to demonstrate our love for one another than our freedom and our liberty in some of these areas. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10 as he was addressing the issue in the church in Corinth about eating meat offered to idols. He says in verses 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let me give you an illustration of this. A couple of nights ago, we were away where I got my son burned. We were at a state track meet, and uh, it was an overnight thing, and we went to dinner with some friends um, that night before. And um, sitting at the table were three couples. Um, one couple was uh, Presbyterian, one was Pentecostal, and then Susan and I were, were the Baptists there. I know, sounds like the beginning of a bar joke, right? <laughs> two Presbyterians, two Pentecostals, two Baptists walk into a bar. No. Well, as we're sitting there, um, as we're about to eat dinner, I know, and I'm, we're dear friends with both of these couples and, and our the Presbyterian couple, they, they enjoy having a glass of wine. They enjoy some, some alcohol with their meal. Um, and so I, I knew that's what they would enjoy. Um, but when the waitress came to take orders, everyone ordered water, including them. And so after a lull in the conversation, I kind of leaned over and I told my brother, I said, listen, you're not going to offend us. Uh, if you're concerned about that, you're not going to offend us. Um, our abstention from alcohol has more to do with some practical reasons than any theological reasons, so you're not going to offend us. Don't worry about that. But after thinking more about it, he limited his freedom because he knew that the other couple at the table truly thought that it was wrong for them to engage in that practice. And, and although they are a sweet, gracious couple, and they would have no problem with our other couple um, taking a drink with their meal. They would have no problem. They wouldn't be offended by that at all. They'd be perfectly fine with that. My friend, my Presbyterian friends, out of Christian love, chose to limit their Christian freedom. And I think that's a beautiful display of the gospel. And I think that's a beautiful display of Christian love. So he tells us there in verse 16, do not let what you regard as good, your blood-bought Christian freedom to engage in this or do this or not do this. Don't let that be spoken of as evil because of a lack of consideration and a lack of care and a lack of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you. 
that should be our first consideration. Now, at this point in Paul's lengthy exhortation in chapter 14 regarding how to handle these kinds of issues concerning disputable matters, at this point, Paul hits the pause button. He's going to dive back into it in the passage that we'll cover next week. But here in the middle, he hits pause, and he does a reset, particularly with the brothers who are stronger in the faith. This is a corrective for the Roman believers in verses 17 and 18. It's a rebuke for what they had been focusing on and an appeal that they might focus on what is really important. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Paul says, guys, you're focusing on the wrong thing here. You're missing the point. The main thing is not these disputable matters, not these matters of morbid scrupulosity, as we've said. These details about eating or not eating, drinking or not drinking, going to R-rated movies, not going to R-rated movies, dancing, not dancing, observing holy days, not observing holy days. These are not the main thing. These are secondary, if that, tertiary or, or, or beyond. They're not the main thing. The main thing is the kingdom, he says, the kingdom of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his, I believe rightly, in his sermons, on this passage of Romans 14, that Paul seems to have a bit of contempt in his tone, and perhaps even sarcasm in his tone in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, he says, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is warning the the brothers and sisters in Christ in the church in Rome who are strong in their faith. He's warning them that they are at great risk of becoming just like the Pharisees, except in reverse. See, both the Pharisee and the, the, the believer who is strong in the faith miss the forest for the trees. They focus so much on the minutia that they miss the main thing. They missed the kingdom. The Pharisees insisted on keeping the minutia of the law so much that they missed the kingdom. And now the brother or sister in Christ who is strong in the faith was insisting so much on the exercise of their freedom from the law that they were at risk of also missing the kingdom and getting completely out of priority and out of whack. Paul says, you guys totally miss the point. He seems to be saying, when when folks are going to come to your church, they're going to get a completely warped and inaccurate understanding of what the Christian life is all about. Because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Unbelievers are going to hang out with some of you, he says, And think that the Christian life is all about abstaining from meat offered to idols. Because that's all you ever talk about. That's your primary focus. That's what you always emphasize. And they're going to get a skewed understanding of the gospel. 
other unbelievers are going to come to some of you, Paul says, I believe, and hang out with others among you. And they're going to get the perspective that the Christian life is all about eating that meat and exercising that freedom, no matter what the cost is. Because that's the main thing for you. It's what you always talk about. That's always what you get into a fuss about. But the Christian life is not about eating and drinking and all these other disputable matters. That's not what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is most fundamentally the reign and rule of God. Where God reigns, where God rules, is the kingdom of God. And we've said many times in here before that the kingdom of God is both now and is not yet. It is here and now, but it is also not yet fully consummated. But what we have in this passage is Paul discussing the now aspect of God's kingdom. And God reigns now, today, in the life of every follower of Jesus. He reigns today and he rules today in the life of every Christian, every believer. And so I think it would be fair to describe the kingdom of God in verse 17 as the Christian life. And he tells us the Christian life is not about eating and drinking. That's not the main thing, but what is? He tells us righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the main thing. Now, how are we to understand those words? Some commentators think that Paul is primarily talking here about the horizontal aspect of these words, of these characteristic characteristics. And so the righteousness that he talks about here in verse 17 would be right living and, and, and right behavior in the body of Christ. And the peace that he talks about here would be peace among brothers and sisters in Christ in, in the body of Christ. And then the joy would be the joy that results from that right living and that peace among brothers and sisters in the church. And so this would mean that Paul is saying that, that what is most important is not the exercise of our freedom or liberty, but what is most important instead is focusing on right living in the church and living peaceably with one another in the church and, and having joy as a result of that peace that we have with one another. And I have to admit, there's a certain sense in which that interpretation is quite appealing because in this whole section, Paul has been talking about our need to be loving to one another in the body of Christ. It's a theme that's carried us through since, since the beginning of chapter 13. And this would be yet another aspect of loving one another. But I don't think that interpretation does justice to Paul's very clear redirect in verse 17 or what appears even to be his tone of sarcasm. I think what we see in verse 17 is a heavy rebuke from the Apostle Paul, almost a ridicule of the stronger brother because of what they have been focusing on. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, he says, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And to understand righteousness and peace and joy as exclusively or even primarily horizontal, referring primarily to the peaceableness that we ought to have with one another in the body of Christ, that just doesn't seem to fit with Paul's redirect from the relatively unimportant to the essential, the core, the main thing, the very essence of the Christian life and gospel. 
And the very essence of the Christian life is, is not that we will enjoy right living. It's not that we will enjoy peace with one another and joy in the church. The very essence of the Christian faith is not the horizontal aspect of these characteristics, but the vertical aspect of them. So consider the vertical aspect of these words, of these characteristics. Righteousness. What has Paul been saying? What has Paul meant in this entire letter about righteousness? He has all throughout this letter referred to righteousness as being right with God. To be right or to be good enough to be accepted by God. I think this is why God led us to do a a summary of where we are in this letter earlier in this message this morning because now we're being reminded of these words that we've seen all throughout this letter. Paul told us in the first three chapters, we are not righteous. We have no righteousness. Because of our sin, we are emptied of any righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. We are fundamentally not righteous. We we are not good enough to be acceptable to God. That was his whole point in the first three chapters. Then in chapters, the midpoint of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, he told us, hey, now a righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what what justified means. Justification means declared righteous. To be declared righteous is to be justified. And we can be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, living that perfectly righteous life for us, dying in our place on the cross, so that by faith in him, We are given his righteousness and forgiven of our sins. That's the very essence of the Christian life. That's the core. That's the main thing that we ought to be focused on, not eating and drinking. What about that second word, peace? The gospel tells us because of our sin, because we don't have any righteousness of of our own, we have also no peace with God. Instead, we are enemies with God, Romans 8, 7. We are by very nature, children of God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We have no peace with God because of our lack of righteousness. We're not good enough, so we don't have that peace with God. We have hostility with God. We're at enmity with God. But if we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, And thereby declared righteous, which is the total reversal of our legal standing before a holy God. Then now we also have this peace with God. Because Jesus satisfied our debt. Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin with his own death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Consider the first two verses of Romans 5. Paul said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we all have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here we see all three of those words that Paul also gives us in verse 17 of Romans 14. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's our new declared righteousness that is ours because of the righteousness of Jesus, that alien righteousness credited to our account by faith. 
Therefore, since we have been justified, furthermore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our newfound peace with God. And then the joy is in verse 2. Through him, through Jesus, who secured our peace with God by giving us his righteousness by faith, we have also obtained an access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. There's our joy. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our joy in the Holy Spirit is a byproduct of having been given this alien righteousness by faith in Jesus and being given peace with God, though we don't deserve it. Friends, this is why Paul erupts at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has been given a gift from him that he ought to repay for from him and through him and to him are all things to be glory forever. The essence, the very core of Christianity, the main thing is not eating and drinking or whatever opinions you, and my, you or I might have about these kinds of disputable matters. The, the main thing is that Jesus Christ has secured our righteousness through his perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection. And those who trust in Christ alone as their only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, are given his righteousness and forgiven of their sins. And we who are his enemies are granted peace with God. And knowing this and believing this results in joy in the Holy Spirit as we daily and moment by moment are overwhelmed by the grace of God. Now, the key for us, the key question for us really is not, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, the, ma- the main key for us, the main question for us here is not whether or not we believe that. The main question that we ought to wrestle with is if an unbeliever were to hang out with us and watch our lives and to listen to our talk and read our Facebook wall, look at our Twitter feed, See what we emphasize with our life. Even our Christian and religious practices and activities. What would they conclude is the main thing, the core of the Christian life? Would they conclude, well, it looks like based on their life that the main thing is about what we eat or what we drink or what we wear or what movies we go watch, or what music we listen to, or whether we have a fish on our car, or whether we listen to the fish. Or would they conclude that the Christian life, you know, it's primarily about helping those who need help, and helping the poor, and fighting against injustice. That's the main thing about Christianity. Is that what they would conclude based on your life? Or would they conclude, you know, um, apparently the, the, the core of the Christian life is about having a quiet time every morning. Or about going to church every Sunday and getting really involved. Or hanging out mostly with other Christians. Or being a Republican or whatever. Or would they conclude, based on their life, it seems to me that the Christian life is all about being declared righteous before God. Though I'm a sinner. That it's primary. The core issue is is sinners 
who are at enmity with God being given peace with the Holy God. And having an, an, an abiding and an unmistakable and unavoidable joy because God has given them peace with him and made us righteous because of Christ. So that's the question I want you to leave with today. What does your life say is the main thing about Christianity? And what does our church say? If we were to have a bunch of unbelievers come in here and just be with us 24-7, what would they say New Branch says is the core of Christianity? Let's pray.